0: Welcome to this episode of Pen to Paper Press Podcast. I'm Cindy Coaches. There's a backstory weaved into each book. To explore the process, I am sitting down with authors, writers, editors, publishers, and an array of creative souls to have a conversation centered on how they develop their stories to completing their works of art. Each episode is an opportunity for us to explore mindsets, pearls of wisdom, and the experiences that began our journey as an author from the moment we put pen to paper. Ruth Little is the owner of Longleaf Historic Resources and Longleaf Studio. Ruth's memoir, The Book of Ruth, narrates 50 years of adventures from preservation activist to consultant, author and artist. In this book, Ruth takes the reader on an emotional journey through many of North Carolina's unique historical places as she tames her metaphoric ghost of patriarchy, tribal anxiety, and relationships. In addition to her memoir, she has written Sticks and Stones, Three Centuries of North Carolina's Grave Markers, and Carolina Cottage, A Personal History of the Piazza... House. And I, did I say Piazza correctly? Is that?
1: It, just like the Italians. All right.
0: <laughs> it is so wonderful to spend time with you, Ruth, and talk about, well, you know, the art of writing and our love of history.
1: Thank you, Cindy. I'm delighted to be here this morning.
0: Good. I'm, it is, you know, when I was looking on your website, and I don't know a lot of the history of North Carolina, but I am someone who loves to to learn more about the local history and i I found your website interesting and and in sharing some of those um elements that I would not have otherwise known and of course, you know curious to read the book, how has your career? Uh, as an artist influenced your writer uh, you know your writing
1: and my career as an artist is is much more recent because as I um, narrate through the book I had artist block for over half of my life although I was born an artist I had a block which I might explain later and So the career actually morphed, the career I would have had as an artist morphed into being an art architectural historian, art historian, and because of my interest in architecture, a historic preservationist. In terms of how it's influenced, the art has influenced my writing, it's the other way around. The writing has influenced the art.
0: Wonderful. So how long have you been doing the historical... Uh, research and and the writings? I got into that in
1: graduate school uh, at Brown University with an incredible uh, mentor, my professor, um, Dr. Jordy, and discovered that being out in, in the world, in cities, in rural areas, talking to people about their buildings, finding out why these buildings and these places look the way they do in terms of architecture was what I was meant to do. So that uh, from graduate school on in the uh, early late sixties, early seventies. So for 50 years, I have been an architectural historian and a historic preservationist. And it gets harder and harder all the time, especially here in Raleigh, second largest growing fastest growing city in the country and they are literally tearing away
0: all of our old old stuff our old places i was not aware of that well that's hard i mean i understand progression and change is always good so on and so forth however we really can't eliminate one or history and that's that is sad that we're losing those elements of our past.
1: But but I've been fighting them, this for 50 years, so it's not my first uh, rodeo, and I'll keep on fighting until um, I have to turn it over to my children and the younger generation.
0: Because it's important to remember uh, how we got from point A to point B, you know, which is present day. You know, and to see the journey that we have taken it it may be an ugly journey, it may be a horrific journey, but it's still important to know the journey so that we can learn from it <laughs>
1: if we don't know our history, we're condemned to repeat it.
0: yes, exactly. so tell me about long leaf um historical. Res- or excuse me longleaf historic resources. Tell me about that.
1: I, I grew up in southeastern North Carolina the coastal plain which was a a longleaf pine uh, until the late 19th century was a longleaf pine uh, ecosystem that stretched all the way down the southern coastline and so I identify with longleaf pines which are quite endangered Obviously, uh, we have very few longleaf pine forests left, these, this uh, original ecosystem. And I'm dealing with man-made endangered resources. So longleaf historic resources seem to be the way to name my business, which I started back in 1990 after uh, working for 10 years with the state historic preservation office here in North Carolina. I became a a consultant and started my own business
0: wonderful that's and what an honor or a way to honor the the trees I, I appreciate that <laughs> so when it comes to writing and doing the preservation work and based on what I've seen of your books and so forth you're doing interviews of individuals you're going to the different sites and so forth tell me about what it's like to uh, um, to write somebody's story from a historical point of view they when i
1: I, much of my career has been doing surveys so i'll get to a particular town or even a whole county a large area or just a neighborhood and I am trying to understand why it looks the way it does. And the best way to do that is not just to take photographs and make notes and uh, do do uh, maps, is to find the oldest person around, the person who's been there the longest, and to, to have them explain why things look the way they do. So I am asking, and I'll knock on anybody's door, I'll stop anybody in the street, I have no fear about um, talking to local people, and from the minute I introduce myself, and then say, uh, "Tell me about your house," or "Tell me about your, your your grocery store," "Tell me about your farm," they just take off, and it's just you know, I'm riding that horse, taking notes just as fast as I can. <laughs> I, I tend, I didn't, I've been doing this since the seventies, and I tended not to use, not to tape them. It was too much. Um, technical stuff i was just taking notes with the clipboard had my camera strapped around my neck it was it was uh one of the great joys of my career was to connect with so many people
0: any idea how many people you interviewed like a hundred (laughs) a thousand thousands thousands some
1: of them were very short and sometimes i had doors slammed in my face and i can remember one old um anti-government uh uh farmer down in eastern north carolina wearing overalls and i asked him if he would allow me to take photographs of his old house and he thought for a minute and chewed his spit his chewing tobacco and then spit it down right in front of my my feet and launched into a dot launched into a diatribe and i said well thank you for your time have a nice day." I won't bother you anymore. You know, and that just kind of, you you, ro- you let it roll off your back because it, that's one, he's one in 300 people right? that I talk to.
0: And, you know, you don't need those people. You don't need their, their input <laughs> as to, I mean, well, I, I take that back because their input would be, would cast a different, um outlook or interpretation of what has happened historically in that area. So, you know, that's too bad that he didn't take that opportunity to, to share with you, because who knows what different insight you could have gotten from him. <laughs> but ah, interesting. So what kind of questions do you ask them? When you're asking them, you well, know the the, details.
1: Well, the basic question is, uh, how long have you lived here? When was the house built? Who built the house? And then, how much has it been changed? Am I looking at at the house or building the way it was built, or you know, has has it been altered a lot? And then I can assess its its authenticity, its character. Um, architectural historians can get a, a little bit purist and elitist because they're, they're looking at whether something is absolutely original, just like, you know, antique furniture dealers or any, anybody else. But I'm just trying to assess, uh, what it is I'm looking at to short circuit my perplexity about how things might have been changed. And then I, I try to, to figure out whether there was who designed the house, uh, maybe maybe the a person's grandfather and his neighbors just built that farmhouse exactly the way they had built farmhouses for generations. When you get back into rural areas, you get into traditional architecture. And then that's just another whole wonderful um, exploration of the culture of where I'm working. So my, my work has been at the intersection of so many different um, specialties, not just design, but culture and history and race and politics and uh, class. It's been just uh, a a wonderful ride.
0: That sounds like it. And that's interesting. You bring up a a wonderful point that, you know, the families would build the same i don't want to say like cookie cutter you know okay this is how we built the houses then we're going to build this house the same way and you know and keep that going generationally that's interesting it makes sense because you already know the floor plan
1: (laughs) and and uh people are people tended to uh a young, young, a young man would take his father's um, trade up. Well, if he was a farmer, he would become a farmer. If he were a carpenter, he'd become a carpenter. And it was, it was, there was uh, such a, a homogeneity in, in most regions that uh, you, you were comfortable with having just what everybody else had. There generally was not a, uh, um, this uh, effort to outdo your neighbor—you wanted to to be like your neighbor.
0: Yeah, the competition, or like you said, to to one up. <laughs> I have it better than they do.
1: Yeah, right. To show off. I mean, it's it's you know, let me show off how much how much money I have by building the biggest house in the neighborhood. Well, I mean that's interesting too because usually they they would get an architect. And then you get, and I'm talking about rural areas now, not cities. Right, right. But you would get uh, the, the the prevailing taste in, in the country when someone had enough money to involve a, tr- a professional designer.
0: Interesting. Oh, I'm learning so much. <laughs> I appreciate that because I love doing, you know, a long time ago. Oh, too many years to count back. Um, at one point, I worked with a local, um, with our county historical society, and, and I had done some interviews of of people and, you know, to help preserve their history, their story, and to get that insight of what it was like back when and fill in that blank. And I just... And I, for for whatever reason, I just lost the name of of what that is called when you when you do those interviews. Um, but I really love sitting or down. Oral history. What's that? Oral history. Yes, thank you. <laughs> oral history. I love doing oral histories because when I sat down with someone, and typically I knew of them. I didn't know them, and I most certainly didn't know their history on a personal level. And so it was like this great exploration of who are you? What did you do? What what were you like when you were a child? What was the area? You know, tell me about, because I'm fourth generation where I'm, you know, where I reside. And I know the buildings, what they look like, and what was there when I was a child. And what it looks like now in many cases is very different. Buildings have had to be you know taken down and, and so forth. And so to hear someone who is, you know, in their eighties or in their seventies, who, you know, are much older than I am at that time, you know, there was at least a forty year gap, to hear them tell me what what it was like in the same neighborhood and and so forth that was uh, very interesting and in, and in what life was like and so with you doing that with the architecture and i'm sure you're picking up family stories as well because how could, how would somebody not tell you <laughs> mostly a
1: lot of a lot of civil war stories you know where the silver was hidden
0: <laughs> oh nice <laughs> And I'm sure a lot of people probably fudged on where that silver was hidden because they don't want somebody in their backyard digging it up. <laughs> but that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, you must have gotten some pretty interesting information, much different than I would hear because I'm in Michigan. And, and things, you know, life um, circumstances and so forth, Um, obviously are different between Michigan and North Carolina. For one, you guys got the heat. We've got the winters. You know, that would be something that would get brought up. How did you deal with the snow here? Uh, You know, you didn't have those kind of questions for down there because you guys don't get a whole lot of snow. And if you do, it's gone. (laughs) So um, with writing your memoir you know take me on take me a tour take me on a short tour of your your memoir what's what are we going to find in that memoir just a a quick glimpse we're we're going to find a a a girl who
1: was born the year after world war 2 ended in north carolina who actually had the ambition to be something when I grew up to help to help make the world a better place. My ambition was never to uh get married and have children, although I wanted to do that, I wanted to also uh follow my bliss. Right. And the bliss originally was uh being an artist and then in college, and this is what I'm taking people through in the memoir, in college uh, a, a a male abstract art professor decided to take my seascape that I was painting in art class as as the uh, object lesson for the for the class to show why uh, painting reality was inferior to painting in in an abstract way a modern way this is the this is the mid 1960s and abstraction was the style in New York City it had been brought over from um, the European artists who had fled Hitler and it was the way to paint. And so my way of painting was wrong. And I took that to heart and decided, well, maybe I, maybe I'm not destined to be an artist. Maybe, but because I love art so much, maybe I'm destined to be a historian who writes the history of other people's art. And so then I took that tack and went off to graduate school after finishing college and got a master's in art history. And eventually a PhD in art history, but I also included folklore because folklore is really culture. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not just interested in design. I'm interested in the people and why the design looks the way it does in in different places. Mm-hmm. So then I get into the, the passion of uh, going from one week I'm in graduate school, finishing up my master's. And then the next week I am working for the State Historic Preservation Office traveling all over North Carolina to document, photograph, interview, write, research the most important places in North Carolina. And I did that for uh, a total of about 10 years for state government through programs. The National Park Service and the state um, uh, enabled all these historians and People like me to get out and explore and document, and this was in the early began in the early '70s, which was the teardown era. The uh, it was the urban renewal era, and so we were we were able to at least protect, uh, preserve through documentation a lot of um, black neighborhoods that got torn down by urban renewal sweeping through new highways that were sweeping through um, usually the The, the black neighborhoods on the wrong side of the tracks. We were able to document lots of downtown um, landmarks that were being torn down to make way for the new. And every decade of my career, I've been doing that. I've been trying to keep up with progress Mm -hmm. by saving, at least in some way, um, the, the, um, what our civilization has erected has as the, the finest buildings, the finest places, the finest neighborhoods that they were able to. So the most of my memoir is about some of my favorite places in North Carolina that I was involved in. And I kept, uh, I was particularly drawn to working in Eastern North Carolina, where my mother's family came in, in the 1600s. Mm-hmm. My, my mother's family goes, Way back to the 1600s, my father's family in the, in the western, in western North Carolina goes back to the mid 1700s. And I was particularly interested in those parts of this, uh, the state because of knowing my family history. And I kept going back. Uh, I would do one project maybe in the seventies, a short project, and then somebody would hire me in the 1990s to go back and do a bigger project in those areas. So I talk a lot about. My maternal counties in in the east, and my paternal counties in the west. But I also (laughs) lived in Raleigh, in the middle, in the middle of the Research Triangle, which is Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. And I, there was a, a great, uh, the National Register of Historic Places was the tool to protect neighborhoods and main streets, uh, historic part, historic cores of downtowns. It didn't only protect them from government projects, but it gave, it gave them access to tax credits if they did um, historically correct rehabilitations. So I, hundreds and hundreds of neighborhoods and main streets that I surveyed and listed on the National Register. And they're there today. And there, lots of the buildings are being used adaptively um uh, old factory buildings are being used as breweries now or low-income apartments or how, uh, old schools being used as housing for the elderly in wonderful ways that has revitalized these communities. And I feel so proud that I've been able to help. I'm, I'm sort of the first one in there identifying what's important and documenting its significance, listing it, uh, for under with the federal and state government so that it has protection. And then the developers, the created developers can come in and do adaptive reuses using some uh, tax credit money.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's been a, a really wonderful ride. Now, what has happened uh, since 2009, 2010, and, and particularly during the pandemic, is that the historic significance of a building and whether it's protected or not, Developers, it's only about the land in, in urban areas. Land is way more important than the historic building. They want to get it rezoned from three stories to 20 stories. And they just, they wait out the one year um, prohibition on tearing something down. Or they convince the, the city to uh, to let them tear it down. And so it's it's wiped
0: out. I I cannot imagine working so hard on something to preserve to to make others aware of and then watching I don't I guess watching the destruction that would be very challenging it would be very it's heartbreaking i yeah, yeah it's
1: heartbreaking and so i can't I, my my solace often is to get back into my art my painting and to to paint these buildings um in in their glory so that other people understand what is so uh what was so marvelous about them if they're if they're gone or if they're still standing why they're so marvelous why why they deserve Um, The the visual aspect of architecture is just, um, has always been my
0: passion. So then what was the thing that got you from not hearing that, that instructor's voice saying, you know, this is not how we do painting to where you're like, you know what, dude, forget you. I'm doing it my way. When did you get right. that voice back and and you know what what gave you that courage to say, "Nope, I'm doing it my way, Fooey <laughs> <laughs> okay. on
1: great question and it was in nineteen ninety nine and my mother uh had dementia, and we had my brother and I had moved her up here to Raleigh and then we were able to go in to her hoarder house. She had not thrown anything away in forty years, wow. and actively collected, made the thrift shop, you know, the, um, the, the the network, and brought all this wonderful stuff home. She was a collector, and her house was completely stuffed. And so, for four years, it took four years and many dumpster empty, emptying to clean out her house. But before we started cleaning out, I went in and I took a photograph of each room. This is the house I had grown up in mm-hmm. since I was eight years old. And I painted each room uh, in collo- sort of big, large canvases with some collage elements. I was using old rags and clothing that she had piled all over everything in the house, collecting old clothing. And I I painted these rooms just as they were—the George, George and Martha Washington wallpaper, etc.—and had my first art exhibit, and I called it "Keeping House," which was kind of a pun on not keeping house. And that—that's uh, that, that jump that got my art career going again after all those years. Of course, I had been raising children and working very hard uh, at my career, but that got me back into painting and it was cleaning out my mother's border house that that was taking lemons and making lemonade it was a really in some ways if i hadn't if i hadn't painted in order to deal with cleaning up all that trash i had to make something beautiful out of it and so i made art out of it
0: that's wonderful
1: so since then i am Sort of half my right brain is an artist, and my left brain
0: is an architect, a historian. <laughs> so then, because she was a hoarder, I'm sure that when you were going through the layers, it was kind of like an archaeological dig, as such, because the stuff that you must have found did it bring back memories or was it just like, or were you in your mind going, what are you doing with all of this stuff? <laughs> I,
1: you know, being a, being a historian, I was saving important things. I was sifting through all of the the garbage and I was saving every family photograph I could find, every letter I could find. And these were not neatly packaged into boxes and organized they were just literally everywhere and and i found a wonderful scrapbook from the 1930s of my mother's cousins at the north carolina coast sitting on the docks of old fishing buildings in their beautiful white dresses and that gave me not only a lot of uh um inspiration for paintings i wanted to do mm-hmm. but it also helped helped me accumulate uh the letters, I reread all the letters, I cataloged the photographs. And a lot of that has gone into this memoir. This memoir really is about, uh, all, all of me as the, as the current, uh, descendant of these hundreds of years of my mother's and father's families being in North Carolina, three 300 years. And, uh, it gave me again a lot of raw material to use to put into the memoir
0: i i'm an archivist uh, yes i i can't one i can't imagine walking into a house like that i kind of sort of have but it was definitely not uh, a family member way way down down another branch. <laughs> when you look at the family tree, I'm going to word it that way. Um, when he passed, uh, several family members, self-included, went to to clean through stuff. And it was interesting what was kept. And the... Well, here's a question for you. Because one of the things that that I found was something intuitively told me look inside the books so you know i found a, a you know a bookcase full of books so i would you know fan through the pages and i found some pretty cool stuff and and did did the same happen <laughs> at your mother's house or I, what
1: what i learned to do is to look in the toes of the shoes and really?
0: there that was where
1: the jewelry that was where the jewelry was stuffed and the shoes were never, you know, it was one, it never, the pair were never together. Um, in this, this was complete chaos. You describe it as an archaeological dig, but actually what my mother had, had done all those years was to sift through everything. She touched everything. She moved it around. Everything got mixed up. It wasn't, uh, in layer by age. Okay. Photographs and letters all over the place. I, I had to look through every single thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so did you find treasures in books or or like letters or, or any documents or anything or you know the treasures were the old photographs that she had
1: collected from all of her relatives and and the letters that everything all the letters that had been sent to her and letters that uh, somehow she'd gotten from other people she she was an archivist too. She just didn't organize anything.
0: <laughs> I like
1: how you word that. That's. So, such... I mean, there's a you know, there's a there are people who save everything, and then there are archivists who save it and organize it.
0: Yes, yes, and and the treasures that you had to have found. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty special. So I, she yeah I found a
1: I found a lot of old aprons aprons from the 1950s and 1960s and I saved every one of them because there's such a statement of domesticity of you know a woman's place an apron
0: Very true very true because back then I mean that back then we were not putting quote unquote the tv dinner into the oven and and heating it up we were making everything from scratch yep. or everything. or yeah, you were trading it off you know somebody likes to make bread you don't you know you trade off canning supplies or you know whatever canned goods for um and i'm not saying canned goods is in like what you find in a grocery store right now i'm talking about like you know the pickled beets and stuff that um, yeah. you know somebody did. You know the the season previous. Um, so going back to your art, with your art, then when you're doing these paintings, you're you're looking back at at the older photographs. You're probably even if the structure is still upright, um, using that as as your. I don't want to say template. Your your inspiration, inspiration, right? Yeah. So, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah.
1: Uh, so, for example, uh, this uh, these photographs of these my mother's young cousins. They were then probably in their early twenties, and they had taken uh, a trip to the coast, and when the coast was not commercialized, and so they were they were swimming on the beach, and and they were exploring these little coastal towns. And they would actually take photographs of themselves sitting on a fish dock. And in the background, I saw fish houses, which are uh, elevated. They're little wooden buildings elevated on on stilts out in the water. So that it's where you would uh, keep your crab traps and your fish nets and all that. And so the do- the boats are tied up around these, and the the dock goes out to these fish houses, mm-hmm. and I they're all gone now in North Carolina on the coast. So I painted a series of fish houses, but not in um, they're they're not drab wooden buildings. I painted them in glowing colors at sunrise or sunset, in a sort of magical realism kind of way, and. People just loved these fish houses. It's a a lost type of building. It's a lost era, a lost culture. And I'm bringing back uh, people's memories of this lost time
0: in the paintings. Well, and even to show, to give that time life. If you're doing it like sunrise, sunset, you know, to many people, that is a representation of you know that that rebirth of the day, that birth of the day, the rest for you know when the sun goes down. That that's that reminder of rest, and and there's a, a romanticized sensation we receive with that because it's that reminder that we just finished the day and tomorrow is coming, and. Sorry, I'm getting a little philosophical there, <laughs> which is not my normal. <laughs> but, um, but to to give that life, because uh, that's probably the two times that we really pay attention to the sky. Unless there's a storm coming, of course, (laughs) but, you know, on a typical day, we we look to the sky when the the sun is rising and when the sun is setting. And it does add that ambiance.
1: My color palette, uh, I paint because I love color so much, and my color palette is is, uh, not realistic at all. And sometimes in in the boats that are tied up to these fish houses, I have mermaids. So it's magic realism.
0: Oh, I like that. (laughs) So tell me about your writing process. When you were working on your memoir... Um, was it something that you just sat down and, okay, I'm going to write a memoir, and then you just worked on it, or was this a project that you spent a considerable amount of time putting the pieces together, and then when you fi- when you got to a point, you said, okay, I'm done, and then started with the editing. What was your writing process like with, with the memoir? Uh, it, it, yeah, it took It took four years to get to this point. The book
1: was published in April. And the first year I spent researching. I, I've been, I've written journal. I've been a journaler since I was eight years old. So I read back through all my journals. I've kept planners of my life. It's, they're like diaries. Mm -hmm. It's since the 1970s, pretty much. And then I, so I got through all those journals and planners. And then and kept and took took notes just chronologically, you know, timeline of my life. And then I started reading the letters, and I added the letters in where they were appropriate. And as and then I I looked at the photographs. And then that was the first year. And then I started writing the second year. And as I was writing I, these childhood stories, I would check to see. For example, I one major uh impact of the patriarchy in my life is that I was not able to go to college where I wanted to go because only men could go to the University of North Carolina. In when I graduated from high school in 1964, they you could only go to the university if you were female junior and senior year. So then I had to find somewhere else for the first two years. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking Is that uh, the norm? Was that the norm for women? Were women not allowed to go to four-year universities? uh, As I was not. And I I studied, you know, Wikipedia was my friend and I've started donating to Wikipedia since then because what would I have done without Wikipedia? I couldn't have written my memoir without Wikipedia because I was always looking for the context of my particular life in the context of other, let's just say women in the South. Mm -hmm. And I found out, well, yes, it was the norm in the South, but it was not the norm outside of the South. So we were particularly, uh, uh, subjugated because of being Southern women put on a pedestal. So at every point when I was writing, I was doing a lot of research to figure out, uh, how, how, uh, how universal was my experience. And then the, so the third and the fourth year, uh, third and the fourth year were the pandemic 2020 2021 and at that point I was really able to dig down uh I started getting editors I had three different editors over the process and um organization is always a huge problem when you're a writer do you organize everything uh chronologically or do you organize it thematically and I had kind of done it I had done it thematically particularly when I got to uh, talking about the places I had worked on and saved in North Carolina. So it it was not a timeline. It was by different place. And I found out that when people would read that part of my manuscript, they would start to go to sleep.
0: <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> because
1: I had actually, it was too much uh, history and not enough what was Ruth doing all this time while she was doing all this historical work? Where was Ruth in her life? What, what kind of, you know, ghosts were, were she, was she battling? So I had uh, this incredible editor, Mary Moore, who put it all together. She wove together. I, I am, you know, always in there when I'm talking about the history and I'm, maybe I'm dealing with a particularly bad episode of panic attacks and I'm traveling back and forth to, to, uh, to put an island on the on the Carolina coast on the National Register. And in between driving from Raleigh to the coast, I'm having panic attacks. So that that gives a tension, a dramatic tension to the memoir. And it was certainly dramatic going through all those panic attacks. But it explains how brave I was to, mm-hmm. to get out and, and subject myself to panic attacks when I'm traveling alone and sometimes getting lost. In order to do the work the preservation work that I that I had to do it is my life's purpose
0: yeah the traveling alone and having the panic attacks would be very challenging I uh, I travel alone and I have an appreciation for uh, for a lot for for those that travel alone and yeah that would not be that would it's interesting that you you put that in there uh in the book because of the fact that it brings people back into where you're at how you're how you're handling things how you're you know moving forward so yeah you're right it it brings them brings you into the book into that into that space and another
1: brave aspect of the memoir is no one ever had any idea that I battled panic attacks. I'm, I was a, pro, I'm a professional mm-hmm. I certainly never wanted to, to, to let other people, the people I worked with or worked for to know that I had this, this anxiety disorder. So it was a secret. And in my memoir now, I am. Letting letting that be part of my story because it's always been at the heart of my story
0: Mm -hmm. So then with editing your book and and publishing it Did you Did you Well one one thing when when authors are getting ready to publish is they do a lot of research as to how to publish? Do I go with a, you know, try to go with one of the big ones? Do I do a hybrid? Do I do self-publishing? Do I, you know, have my friend, you know, whoever help me publish this? Um, how was your process for deciding how you were going to publish your book?
1: Well, I sent out, I sent out the, the prospectus on the book to, uh, agents in New York City and to uh, book presses in North Carolina. I never heard anything. Well, I got polite. um, Thank you, but no thank yous from the New York City agents. A couple of presses in North Carolina, and there aren't very many left, uh, said, they basically said, we don't do memoirs. So, okay. So then I started looking around at self-publishing companies, and I actually found a wonderful small press in Chapel Hill called Lystra press. And it's a, it's a one woman operation and she's a novelist and she very selectively takes other writers and helps them turn their books into works of art. Oh, really? And so Nora, Nora S timer of Lystra press uh, was my book angel and she and her, uh, her editor and her uh, uh, graphic designer. We were a three three woman <laughs> committee that turned the book into really
0: just a, a wonderful um, effort. Wonderful. Well, I'm glad that you had that wonderful experience, and and eventually the right people come into to place and and help us with our journey and and get everything you know set in motion as such so where can people on the internet find you to learn more about your you know your historic resource um and also longleaf uh, studio so they can see your artwork as well
1: okay well let's start with where they can order the book yes um, the book of ruth taming ghosts saving history is available on Amazon, of course. It's available on Barnes and Noble, on uh, Bookworks, at, at uh, some local bookstores here in Raleigh. And to find out more about me, my uh, combination uh, historic preservation and painting website is ruthlittle.com. And uh, I am all over the internet
0: because of all the stuff I've written. <laughs> so, have you been writing articles? As, uh, as well, writing articles. Uh,
1: I, I, over a dozen books, articles, reports
0: after reports after reports. So, sure. Since you have a fair number of books and I only named a couple. (laughs) Do you mind telling me what the titles of your books are so they can uh, find that as well?
1: Well, you mentioned, uh, I think the two most popular books, which are the uh, sticks and stones Mm -hmm. uh, about North Carolina grave markers, which is uh, really anthropology. It's a study of anthropology and, and uh, sculpture. Um, And it's, That's been my most popular book. Um, You mentioned Carolina Cottage, which is a semi memoir about a a wonderful particular Southern house type from the 1700s and 1800s. And then the other books are all about particular places, uh, studies of counties, the architecture of a whole county in North Carolina, Caswell County, Ardell County, um, Greens, I did a, a Greensboro study, Greensboro, North Carolina study. So they're, they're more architectural catalogs. Okay. And I wrote this book to pull everything together. Um, the book The book is all about all my work in North Carolina in terms of preservation and my art. And it's full color and beautiful color scattered throughout the entire book.
0: Wonderful. Ruth, I want to thank you for your time. I am so appreciative. I learned quite a bit in this conversation and the preservation uh, of these buildings, of these locations, these farmhouses, you know, all that you are seeking to help keep um, available for future generations, you know, that's not an easy job. And I, I truly am grateful to to learn more about all of this and bring that extra awareness to preserving the history. So thank you. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you, Cindy. You are a terrific interviewer, and you've helped me get out my message that I want people to look, it, it, even if they're interested in history. Don't just concentrate on names and relationships. Also, look at the the the, the um, objects, the material objects, the buildings, the places that that these people have uh, created. Yes, that visual aspect tells you as much as words yes
0: oh i like that yes (laughs) i agree well thank you again and i i look forward to seeing what else you you put forth out into the world to preserve our history so thank you thank you cindy before we end our time together i'd like to say thank you for listening to my conversation with ruth little to access Ruth's website, view her artwork, and learn more about the historical book she has written, visit pen to backslash podcast and select the show notes page for this episode. If this episode resonated with you, please share it on social media and with those you feel will be inspired by it. Help spread the wisdom. You never know who else needs to hear the messages that are weaved throughout our conversation. To receive future episodes in your inbox, subscribe to the Pen to Paper Press newsletter and follow Pen to Paper Press podcast on social media. Take care, and until next time, keep your pen to paper and write. Your words have power. Your story matters. Bye for now.